This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I am delighted to introduce Jacqueline Kerr, our speaker for tonight. I met Jacqueline, I think, probably about three years ago when she and Simon Marshall had invited me over to their lab to get some guidance on how should they be thinking about the ethics of of the research that they were doing that involved new technologies. And being that I've been on an institutional review board for the past 20 years, I think now, um, I said, sure, let me see what I can do to help you. And I went over there, and they started showing me what they were using. They showed me the wearable cameras. They showed me the GPS devices that I've actually brought with me, and I can show you those in a little little bit. But then they showed me what the data looked like. And the data that these devices was capturing was incredibly granular, and there weren't any standards for how to store these data. There weren't any... Um, prior studies that had evaluated what the risks were. And there was a challenge in that the institutional review boards that were responsible for reviewing the ethical and regulatory dimensions of this research were not prepared and, as a result, were delaying the approval of federally funded research. So the reason that Jacqueline and Simon had invited me was, how do we navigate this road? We're doing incredible, important work. Um, we're using novel techniques, and we have federal funding to advance this research. So in addition to being a pioneer in the, in the world of wearable sensors and using those tools to advance human health, Jacqueline and her team have also been incredibly innovative in terms of creating the ethical standards and really thinking forward about what their responsibilities are as um, stewards of the data. And I'm just honored to be able to work with this group, and it has actually opened up a line of research for me. As Mike said, nobody has been paying attention to this area, and it's relatively new. As a result of Jacqueline's invitation to help them advanced their research, we were fortunate to get a a grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation recently called Connected and Open Research Ethics, where we're actually creating um, best practices to guide the ethical design and the responsible review of research using these new technologies. So I'm delighted to have Jacqueline as a second speaker of this series, and without further ado, I'll turn it over to you, Jacqueline. Thank you very much for the opportunity to talk this evening. Maybe I'll do a quick check. Does anyone think that they've been a participant in one of our studies? Do we have? We have one participant here. So what are the rest of you doing then? How come you're not volunteering? No, thank you. So I I hope you're also extremely interested in what we have to show tonight. So... um, I'm a professor at the Department of Family Medicine, um, and I only agreed to do tonight if I had a little bit more support. So Camille, as moderator, will also help me ask questions if necessary, because this is a a tricky area of of research and ethics. And also our our surprise guest is going to be Katie 
Chris, who's um, my program manager and really deals with these issues on a day-to-day basis as well. And there are actually lots of other members of our our team here. So um, I'm always grateful. It it definitely takes a, a, a dedicated and conscientious team to do this sort of work. The brief outline of what we're going to talk about is one, GPS data. So that's data that gives you an XY coordinate, so it tells you where you are. So why do we collect that data? What does it look like in a protected way? (laughs) And how do we protect the data? I'm then going to show you some image data and, again, explain why we think it's important to collect this data, what it looks like, and how to protect the data. Um, So as you can see, this is one of our um, research associates wearing the devices. So you can see the sense cam is worn around the neck. That is the camera that takes the pictures. We have accelerometers that I'm not going to talk about tonight, um, but they measure movement either on the hip or the wrist. So if you've got a Fitbit... Um, it's similar to that. And then we have a GPS that is worn on a hip. So we use what I would describe as research-grade GPS devices because we want to know that they have a very high accuracy. They have a very long battery life because, of course, if you use your GPS full-on on your phone, it will drain your phone battery. Um, so we use those devices, and we simply put them on the same belt as the accelerometer so that the two don't become separated because most of the time we're trying to see is someone sitting in a certain location or are they moving in a certain location or are they moving through space are they on public transportation so those are the types of things that we're interested in so after describing the the data and some of our research questions I'll also bring into the um, view what the future of this research might look like and what new risks might be and I'll be very interested in getting your perspective on that So essentially, we have been collecting GPS data since about 2008, and we have data on over 5,000 participants of all ages from 15 or more studies sponsored primarily by the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute and the National Cancer Institute. So to just look back at the picture, there's there's the GPS device, and um, here's some example of, of what that data can look like across the county. So even though Camille mentioned that she um, only started working with us three years ago, we had been collecting this data for a number of years. And there was some things that I saw that led me to seek further advice. So the very first time um, I was going to do a GPS study, I went and met with our ethical review board chair and said, what am I going to do about this data? I can see where people are going and, and, and... you know, what time of day helped me protect it. Um, And at that time, I could see even the the chair didn't quite appreciate some of the risks, and I tried to educate the ROB board of that, the Institutional Review Board of that, as much as possible. Um, But what we saw was when we brought Camille on board that there was a shift. The, The board members became more educated, were more concerned by risk over time, so then we had to implement additional protections that they thought necessary. So there was definitely an evolution as people became more knowledgeable about what GPS data was. But as I say, I'm a worrier. I was worrying about having this data. So I I really try to um, take care of it. So why would we want to collect this data? 
So essentially, there's been many studies showing us that where you live can be um, associated with your health. Um, but many of us actually don't spend all our day at home, and we may have opportunities across the day to be exposed to. Um, Poor environments or positive environments, and so does that change the risk we face by where we live? And if you think, for example, about school children, maybe it's actually their their school and what's around the school that might be more important than their home, for example. So essentially, it's about the things in the environment that could be pollution,、um, that could be exposure to parks, to positive green environments. How does that affect your health? So we wanted to know really about all the day and all the places you go, not just your home address. The other thing that we also are really interested in is this information to inform transportation and land use planning. So essentially, we're trying to build a more walkable community. We're trying to provide evidence to support more walkable communities. And essentially, for example, San Diego government area SANDAG has a regional transportation plan, but they don't have data in it that is real GPS data from people around the city who are walking to then push a walking agenda in their plan. So it's really important of, for us to say, look. This is where people walk, and these are the types of streets they walk on, and these are the types of streets where they they they're at a greater risk of、um, collision with a vehicle, and these are the types of streets that they feel safe, and they're going to be encouraging, being happy to walk on. So it's really important for us to understand、um, where people are are doing transportation behaviors as well. And again, that's one of the benefits of the the GPS device. As you move from point to point, so it collects a, a, a data point、um, every 15 seconds. And so, as you move from point to point,、um, you have distance, and from that you can calculate speed. From speed, you can start to see: okay, is somebody walking, cycling, on a bus, in a vehicle, etc. We're also interested in、um, assessing and、um, Encouraging outdoor activity. So when we look at our data, we can see that if you're physically active outdoors, you're more likely to do it for a longer period and a higher intensity. That's going to be good for your health. You could also be、um, exposed to social encounters in your community,、um, greenness. We know that essentially elements of nature can be positive to our health. We don't know yet all the mechanisms by which nature might be impacting our health, but we want to know those. Things so it's really important for us to assess interventions. Now, if we're trying to encourage people to go outside more often, we need to know. Yes, we ask them to go outside. Did they go outside? That's the sort of proof of concept for us. But again, back to the planning. I'm not going to encourage people to go outside if it's not safe to do so. So I really want to make sure that we're building these safe environments. You know, and it's interesting in this hundred、um, years of the national parks. How much are we protecting our natural spaces, and can we provide evidence as researchers to help those arguments to protect parks for for all、um, ages? And and especially, I want my kids to be in parks. So then, the other thing we want to do is assess behaviour change 
if, for example, we do build more sidewalks and bike paths, if we get infrastructure investments from the city, from the county, they want to know that people are using those infrastructure investments. And if they can show that, they're more likely to invest again. So really what we do has, has a big um, uh, connection to the city, the county, and the type of environment, the type of place that we all want to live. So why do we need to protect this GPS data? So um, a quick uh, show of hands, maybe. How many of you have GPS enabled on your cell phone? Okay, yeah, maybe how many don't is a better question. Yeah, I mean, so, so we're all collecting GPS data. I don't think we know how often or, or when and where, but we, many of us have that enabled on our cell phone if we have a cell phone. Um, how many of you have your home address programmed into your car navigation system? So maybe about a third, less than that. Um, and so, you know, my, my husband, the dramatist, said, you know, well, if our car got stolen, somebody can see where our home address is. He was the one that programmed it in. Um, and, and, and they'll know we can't get home because they've got our car and they could drive right home and rob us. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, that's that's information that maybe we should be protecting. Um, and that's really the question. Can you be personally identified and targeted if data were breached? And I think really there's so much more information available online about your home address, for example, um, that you can see on these real estate websites where you can actually see the house. Sometimes you can see the type of car out front. So there's so much more information available that someone, if someone can actually see your home address and, and where you go where you drop your kids off, what time of day. I mean, I think those things are definitely, to me, very, very concerning. So how do we protect our GPS data? So maybe the first thing to say is our data is not real-time data. So unlike your phone, where it's being collected as and when you move about and then uploaded to your phone and uploaded goodness knows where else at what point in time, someone then um, could probably actually see where you were at that moment in time. So some of these risks about, you know, are you at home? Can I um, see that you're in a park? Can I, can I interfere with you in those locations? That's not the case with, with the data we have. It's all stored on the device and then it's uploaded to our computers um, you know, as soon as we get it back from the participant, but then it's not on you when we have access to the data. So um, for, for, for many of these risks, then um, we, we have protection. We can't actually see where you are now and we never look at where you are now because we don't see the data till you've handed the device back to us. We also encourage participants, if you don't want us to know where you've gone, then take it off. You know, that, that is okay as well. We can all think of reasons why we might not want to know. And um, as you saw, you know, I showed a picture of the, the county where we have data across the whole county, but I'm never showing data of one individual where somebody could sort of say, oh, I know where that person is. I know where that's, that, that is to, to identify um, people. So that, that's definitely one thing we do. Um, 
some people have asked us to protect the data by by putting like an offset on it in some way, so that you can't necessarily see the home address. You move it, you shift it by a few meters or something like that. But essentially, our research is about getting more precise. So if I start to manipulate the data in that way, it's really sort of moving against where we want to get, which is more precision about where you are. And finally, we really went this extra step. Which does cost us more money、um, to have a HIPAA certified secure system. So basically, that means the the place where our data is housed is hyper secure. It has more secure layers that are checked constantly than any other sort of system there is. So you know, you hear about clouds like the Amazon cloud, which is where you can put your own data, and sometimes they they have been saying there may be some 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 secure ones, more secure or HIPAA compliant, for example. But ours is HIPAA certified, which means we go through more hoops to make sure the data is protected. And we've been able to do that because at at、um, UCSD, we have the San Diego Supercomputer Center, where they have expertise in these things. So now let's move on to the camera, and I would declare I do not have a camera on. <laughs> Does anyone else? Anyone else recording this? Oh yeah, those guys at the back. Yeah. <laughs> So we've been collecting、um, SenseCam data, and we call it SenseCam data because that was the original name of it. It was developed by Microsoft,、um, and then it became Vicon Review because the the Vicon, which is a camera company, took that over. And essentially,、uh, Microsoft built this device and thought it was a really good idea, and then we're looking for uses for it. And actually, they found it most useful for folks who are starting to have some cognitive problems. And if they wore the camera, they could then review the pictures through the day and form better memories because of that process of reviewing pictures. So it really was used early on as as a memory aid. Um, and you can see here in this picture. This is actually a picture of, of、um, my husband, who、um, really took a huge interest in this. I wouldn't say that he's normally not interested in my studies, but he's not volunteering every day. But when I came home and was describing this study where I had cameras, he's like, "I want to wear one." He's like, "Really? Yeah, I want to see what I do all day, you know." And so it's really funny how people are interested in those things. So I had an inkling with this that we wouldn't have too much difficulty recruiting people into studies because I figured people were interested in their daily lives. But here's an example of a picture that can be taken. You know, he's washing his hands after going from the bathroom, so you can get a self-image、um, from from the camera. So again, we've been collecting this data since 2011,、um, and we essentially、uh, started out working with colleagues in the UK who had been doing this. So we had some advice from from、um, folks who had already had it passed at their ethical review board as well. This work's been mostly funded by the National Cancer Institute, and I just wanted to show you kind of the range of folks、um, and and the type of data we have. So, for example, we started out、um, working with cyclists because we were really interested to see could we see.、Um, The the cycling environments that they were exposed to, and could we also assess cycling using other devices?、Um, we then had a small cohort of Latino adults. We had older adults, overweight women. 
We then had a study of children adults and, and older, older adults. And again, um, you know, my son was a, a participant in this study. So it was very interesting to, to review his data as well. He never sits still. Oh, my goodness. Um, and then more recently, we're going to be um, launching uh, a, a study with a, a more diverse set of adults. So, you know, almost 400 adults. But considering the number of days of data we, we have, it's about uh, 2,500 days. And that's really nothing if you think about it in terms of days. But essentially, this camera has um, a series of sensors on it. And um, essentially, it, it has things like an accelerometer. So if you're moving too fast, it's not going to take a picture because it would just be a blur. Um, it will take a different picture depending on the lighting. Um, if you sort of get up and move to a different room and the lighting changes, it's going to take a picture then. It's going to take a picture as sensors as an infrared, so it senses if, if you're having an interaction with someone, it will take a picture then. Temperature change, it will take a picture. And then it has a default. If it hasn't taken a picture for about 20 seconds, it'll take a picture. So they're just still images. Um, but essentially, we have over 3,000 images per day. So certainly from a, a, a data management um, perspective, it's, it's, it's a lot of data. So again, why do we collect this type of, of data? And here along the bottom, you can see some example images. So it's really data taken away from you. So the first one here, as we see the person moving closer to the bridge, we can tell that they're, they're walking. You can see the handlebars of the bike very clearly. You can see the steering wheel. You can see the food, the television. You can see the person's feet as they're in um, an, an exercise environment. So it's really very helpful for us to know what people are doing. Because if I asked you to report all these things, not only would you want to kill me, because if you had to do it all day long for every single thing you do, I mean, it's bad enough if you do a travel diary and you're having to tell me how many trips across the day. And usually then people are so fed up of that, they might do it for two days. But this camera can basically automatically take these images and help us understand what you're doing um, across multiple days. So it's much richer data for us. So the idea is that, that, that you're not having to be burdened by doing those things. And to be honest, we're not very good at it. So for example, if I compared somebody's trip to something that they would self-report in a travel diary, we estimate, we, we, you know, as soon as you put on your bicycle helmet, you think you're cycling, even though it might take you a while to get out, get your bike unlocked or, or whatever, you forgot that you were chatting for a few minutes, etc. So, so it really is more reliable, precise data, and that's what we're trying to get to. So essentially... We have people wear the camera plus these multiple other devices. And I, our idea is that we want these other devices like an accelerometer, which really is, is um, not an inconvenience to wear. If we can develop computer algorithms so that I can, uh, so I can predict more things from that accelerometer, that's what I want to be doing. So I just want to inconvenience you with an accelerometer in future, but a few people have to suffer wearing the camera so that we can do that. So again, the idea is in future that we, we, we have already worked out these things and to, to make the burden less for, for everyone. But again, we don't want to be guessing whether we've got it right. This, the image data tells us we've got it right. Um, and, and our staff have to go through and, and review those images and uh, 
bless them. <laughs> also, it could be used for intervention, and that was what was so fascinating to me when my husband wore the camera over a weekend. I was just shocked how many beers there were in the fridge. I had this picture of the fridge. I'm like, oh, goodness. What his breakfast looked like, um, etc. So you can really see, I mean, a, mid, a, a picture tells a thousand words. Um, for example, if, if a clinician were trying to understand more the environment and contextual barriers to someone changing their behavior or just seeing, okay, what is it that you're eating? You know, again, are we really going to tell the clinician exactly everything we eat? Whereas if you've got a picture of it, then you can start to have a conversation about it. So again, why do we need to protect this SenseCam data? Have you ever been in a picture in a public space at a party that gets posted on Facebook? Anybody aware of that? That they didn't really want to be as well. And the other one, ever heard of a movie star upset about nude pictures going viral, right? You know, we have things that we think are protected and private, but people can get access to them. So that's really what we, we want to avoid. So again, a bit like the, uh, the GPS device, the, the data is stored on the camera, so we don't... Um, see it and use it until you hand it back to us so it's not in real time. And essentially for this, we developed an ethical framework to understand what it was, what were the risks and what did we need to do. Um, so we have very clear instructions and we do actually everything to provide those instructions in forms where a participant doesn't have to explain to someone else that might ask them about it, what is it you're wearing and why. We have a little card that they can give someone who inquires and then they can call me and ask me about it or have issues. But essentially we ask them to um, let people know that they're wearing it and what it's doing as much as possible to ask permission. Um, but if you're out and about in the street, then, you know, it's not like you're stopping every person. But also, you know, in sort of more private environments, just, just a quick check with people that they're comfortable with it. But again, turn the camera off, take it off as, you know, you think it, you want to, but also as, as you might be required to, for example, in, in um, public spaces, restrooms, etc. And again, we have this button on it that's a privacy button, and it gives you um, four, to, four to seven minutes of privacy. So when I wore the, the, the camera, I didn't press that once because I wanted to see, okay, did anyone see anything? And so then I went through my data, and I could see that really not much was, was captured. But we allow everyone to review their data at the end, and they will delete any unwanted images that they don't want shared. And if we happen to come across an image that we think isn't, you know, that you wouldn't want us to see, we also delete it as well. Um, it is stored securely. Um, and as I mentioned, we, we have to um, do all this work on it. We have to label every image. So we need to be able to access the data. Um, so, so eventually it will be stored um, more securely in, a, in like a HIPAA certified environment. But while we're working on it, it it's not there. Um, and essentially, identifiable data is not shown. So for example, here in the picture, if we were trying to explain that we were able to um, validate that, that the GPS device put these people in this particular fast food outlet, and we, we're writing a paper about that, um, and trying to explain what the data is, we, we always hide anything that, that, that might be identifiable. We also do interviews to check we're on track. So we have performed focus groups around technology with older adults. And essentially what they said there was, 
just don't put me on a marketing mailing list. So that was really surprising. They really thought, you know, one, because this was in the context of an intervention, helping them change their behavior. They're like, no, I want you to have my data because you're going to help me and you're going to keep me accountable. And, you know, these things are important. And it's important for science. So, I, you know, I was quite surprised they really had very few concerns. Um, and we prompted particularly on ethical concerns. Um, and we also interviewed part, study participants. Um, this was a, an idea from Camille. So that when the Institutional Review Board um, came back and said to us, well, we think participants aren't going to be comfortable wearing this device, we said, well, let's check with them first. I mean, you're, you're assuming you know what our participants are experiencing and thinking. So we did do interviews to check that they were comfortable with the device. And at the end of the study, they really thought they had understood the study at the beginning and signed up for what they had thought they were signing up for. So that's essentially sort of where we're at and what we've done to, to be protective of, of your data. So, but where are we going in future? So there's going to be much more personal data from wearable devices. So we will have studies where we use data in real time, even to, to either correspond with you in real time to say, oh, I see you're coming up to a great park soon. Why don't you stop and have a walk? I mean, we, you know, that sort of thing would be really great for us to be able to do. Or your rating, this street is horrible. You know, we want to know where you are and what you're doing. Um, and then we're also going to probably need more studies that share data. So one of the amazing things we did is working with our computer scientists is, is definitely changed our perspective on ethics. Now, for example, all, all um, students, staff, everyone involved in our studies has to go through ethical training. And it's very rigorous, but it doesn't really tell them exactly what they are allowed to not do. <laughs> Don't do this. So I basically created a list and was like, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Because I think people don't realize in the context uh, exactly some of the risks they might be doing. Um, and, and those lists were particularly important for our computer science student who weren't used to working with human subjects data. So I had to be much more rigorous with them than, than students that normally had been used to this type of environment. But what the computer scientists taught me was if they develop an algorithm, the only way that anybody in the computer science world thinks that it's a valid algorithm and worth using is if they check it themselves. And usually what they're trying to do is improve it by a few percentage points as well. So if you can't share your data, they can't do that sort of science. So now we are definitely moving into asking questions in our consent form is, are you comfortable having your data shared? And then in what context? Just, just with anyone? Could it be a public data set? Or is this only to known researchers who access it in a specific way? And so we definitely had one um, study so far where we were just doing some um, videoing of people eating because we're trying to see if we can detect eating from a wrist-worn accelerometer. And we said to them, are you comfortable having this data shared in a totally public, unprotected way. And because it was just a single behavior in an in a environment like that, and it was students, they were happy to do that. So we'll have to be, see, you know, are, will others be comfortable in all situations? But I think we need to push that envelope 
and allow people to sign up and assess the risk themselves. Say, I'm willing to do this. And others will say, I am not. But for us not to decide as researchers what they are willing and not willing to do before we've even asked them. So then that really comes to the end, which is how do we balance the new risks and the new research? So what is it reasonable for universities to do in the current technological environment? If every day we're exposed to these risks of our data being stolen and our, our paths being identified, what else does the university have to do? And we certainly always say that, yes, this might be acceptable in public, but we hold ourselves to a higher standard. But at the same time, the risks we're putting you under are no different to the risks you're going through in daily life. So that's often a way that we try and frame risks. So it's definitely a conundrum. Should companies be providing more protection? And of course, it wasn't by accident I picked Apple there, who you know, clearly have been in the news recently about, you know, will they un, un, uh, unhack their phones? Um, and are ethics boards aware of the risks participants are willing to take? In a generation that is growing up with these devices and is comfortable sharing everything, I mean everything, right? It is everything. <laughs> are, are they going to be more willing to, to do things for, for research that, that perhaps we hadn't considered at one time wasn't even um, possible? So that's where I'm going to end. We're going to start to take your questions. Um, uh, maybe, Camille, you do a re recap of what they can write on their uh, cards. And, and Katie and I are going to sit on stage and... Um, answer some of those questions for you. So thank you very much. We're going to go ahead and get started. And um, Courtney will be collecting your questions and then bringing them up to me in a few minutes. Um, but in the meanwhile, while we're waiting for your questions, I'm going to go ahead and ask a few. So um, one of the things that I think is really interesting about the kind of data that you're collecting. You're collecting health information. You're collecting personal health information. And you, because you're conscientious about this, wanted to think, how should I protect this data? And the IRB may not have had any requests of you to do it a certain way, but you were concerned about the data. How should you protect it? And you opted to go into what's called HIPAA, so many of you in the audience, HIPAA is a way of protecting your protected health information, so information about your health that goes into your medical record. If it doesn't go into your medical record, it doesn't fall under HIPAA protections, and there is no guideline for how that information is protected. So you went above and beyond voluntarily because you also not only are conscientious, but you have money to do that. What happens when a researcher who wants to use GPS data or captures images on a, on a sense cam wants to do this kind of research and does not have the resources to store it as you've done? What, would you, what kind of recommendations would you make about how that should happen? We definitely went above and beyond, and, and that was, was possible because of um, funding. Um, but it's also because of the future infrastructure that we want to build. We want to have a system where the data is secure so that other people can eventually um, 
use it as well. Other researchers can have access to it. So that was always one of our goals. Um, if the, the funding isn't there, then, then there are very simple measures. You, you don't carry this data on a laptop. You have it in a secure office. Um, you have it locked on a computer with password protections. You have it um, de-identified, so there's no name associated with the data. Um, and depending on your use of it, you could clip the data as well to take out certain information. Um, so those are sort of minimum standards that a researcher has to abide by anyway. So if you can't afford to do those things, um, then you'd have to get very special permission from your participants to say, we won't be protecting this data in any way. Are you okay with that? Um, and I, I don't think an IRB would, would approve that. Right. Okay. You also mentioned that data management is a real challenge, the, the volume of data, the sensitivity of data, and your desire to want to share data. So what kinds of um, strategies have you identified that allow you to share your in, your, not only your location data, but also your images with colleagues who you may be collaborating with that are not in your, your lab? So we, we don't share um, image data with anyone else. We, we annotate it ourselves. We label it, we tell you what's in the image, and then we share that. Um, so people can still see what that is. Our computer scientists, who are vision computer scientists, extract features from the images, and they could share those features but not the actual image. Because at this stage, other than that one example I said, where participants agreed to have their images shared, We've not done that. Um, other ways that we do at the moment is, is we basically um, get other people to send us the question and then our, or the algorithm they're developing in and run it ourselves on, on our data set. But it's a real challenge because essentially there's not so much funding to maintain infrastructure. Um, so that's a constant challenge for us. And also, uh, Jacqueline had mentioned you developed an ethical framework, and so anytime there are researchers who are using the data, they have the framework, and we have you know something they have to sign that says that they've read it, and they will abide by those procedures. Okay, thanks. One of the things that I wanted to mention to the audience is a, as an Institutional Review Board member, I don't know how many of you have noticed that I'm wearing this device. <laughs> So this is, um, this is called an autographer. It's similar to a sense cam, and it's used to capture pictures. As Jacqueline said, they get about 3,000 a day. So if somebody wears this for a week, there's going to be close to 25,000 images in their data set. Um, how many of you would have wanted me to disclose that I was wearing this before I started talking or wear, using it? Any hands wanting to... Okay. Now, this is not on, so it's, it is not taking any images of you, but I was just curious about whether or not you would want to have some control over whether or not you became part of the data set. So that was one of the biggest challenges for the Institutional Review Board. If I'm the participant in the study and I, and I consent to participate and I'm consenting to wear this seven days, 
you're the people that happen to be in the research record. There will be images of my food, of my bicycle handles, my desk, but there's also going to be images of people in the office, you know, people in my family. So part of what this ethical framework is that, that Jacqueline and her colleagues have developed is under what circumstances should we be asking permission of those around us? And so we're actually starting, you know, thinking about testing that with people like you, people who aren't the participants, to find out under what circumstances do you really want to be informed? Because right now our regulations don't, don't speak to your rights as bystanders. So that's been a really interesting new challenge that's, that's been basically created because of this new type of, of technology that's being used as a research tool. So one of the things that I'm, I'm interested in, I'm going to grab, this is one of the research tools that you guys have in your, your, your box of, mm-hmm. of fun things. So this is a, a Garmin VivoFit, and it's a commercial device that's worn on, on your wrist to measure activity. I don't know what all else it gets, but Fitbit, how many of you in here are wearing a, a fitness tracking device? So there's a few, a few of you, but not, not very many. So one of the things that happens when a research participant is asked to wear a commercial device, now you mentioned that your, your GPS is research grade, so you have control over all the data that's being collected on the camera, you have control over all of the data that's being collected on GPS, and that way you can manage your data. But when commercial devices are now being used as research data collection tools, what, res- what do you think the researcher's responsibility is for informing the participant of what they agree to when they, don't so- when they don't read the terms of use, the terms and conditions? How many of you have read the terms and conditions? I agree, right? I agree. So most people won't. What, what do you think the researcher's obligation is to that participant who needs to sign up in order to participate? Good question. We, we, we haven't written an institutional review board on that. Maybe there's, I know at the Cancer Center there are definitely some Fitbit studies. So I think it's making people aware that somebody else has their data and when you wear one of these devices that, that data is um, collected. And, and for example, my husband tracks his, his rides in, in Strava and Strava can sell that data back to the county to help inform the transportation plans. So, I mean, uh, you know, the, there's uh, definitely different uses, positive potential uses of that, that data. Um, but maybe if we as researchers could, um, you know, in all the work we do, to, we try to simplify um, the instructions and, and um, so perhaps that could be where we have these key points that we say are important from what they've signed up for and, and to make that clear and it does also remind me of a recent re- review we got of a grant which was um, we were saying people's data was being collected in real time so then they said well, are you responsible in real time to monitor that data? Because, for example, if they, something on the data looks like somebody's had a fall, do you have to be there 24-7 checking that data? And I was like, well, that's not possible for us to do. But clearly we make 
they have to make it clearer to participants that even though we're collecting this data, it is in real time. We're not looking at it all the time in real time. We're not monitoring your behavior. So um, not also just not monitoring you, but also if there was some problem, we wouldn't necessarily be aware of it. So I think we have to make that really clear to our participants. So now I have uh, questions from the audience. So this one is on study design. How do you ensure the data you collect from, from the camera is truly representative of the person's behavior? Mm-hmm. That people are not changing their behaviors to be socially acceptable. Mm-hmm. This also gets at how do you keep the device's purpose to be for research versus serving as an intervention? Good question. When I, when I wore it, I did turn it off when I was chowing down on some guacamole. I was like, I don't want anyone to see this because I'm going to eat the whole bowl. Um, so yeah, that, that definitely is a problem. But to be honest, um, because you, you wear it and, and, and it becomes, I know it seems like a large device, but you just don't notice it after a few days. So um, from that perspective, and, and other people don't notice it. When we ask people, is, did, did anybody notice you were wearing this? And they're like, nobody noticed, nobody asked me. So they're not being reminded of it constantly and, it, and it's pretty lightweight so um, you definitely forget about it and that's the same with any of the wearables we have and, and certainly some data practices for some tools people might delete the first day or two of data just until people come back to their habitual behavior but if wearing these devices we're going to solve the obesity problem I'd say get them out there everybody wear them it just doesn't work like that it doesn't it doesn't happen and the same Fitbit's not going to change the world not many people have got them on um, but the the other thing, uh, let me think, what was the other thing I was going to say about this is um, the type of research we're doing is we don't necessarily have to have representative behaviors. So if I'm to trying to develop an algorithm that detects whether you're eating or not, as long as I have some good examples of you doing that, that is sufficient. I don't have to have every example. And it is something we specifically address in the uh, informed consent process when we're talking about the study, that we really are trying to capture everyday activities. So we really, our, our research staff is trained to bring that message home, that we're not looking for anything in particular. And like Jacqueline said, after a day or two of wear, you, you do kind of forget. And I am very guilty of that because I had some I needed to delete uh, before the rest of our research <laughs> saw them. But... Yeah, it's surprising. You do forget. And what we've noticed, Katie was just talking about the the practice of allowing people control over their images, being able to delete things, review them before the research staff reviews them. And what we've done is looked to see, are people deleting? How many are they deleting? And most people are looking, and we found that there are very few people that are asking for images to be deleted. Um, so they see themselves going to the grocery store, getting gas, and it's like, okay, that's good. <laughs> um, this question is, how will the large amount of info be reduced to allow average people, not technical, to use the data? Well, as Jacqueline mentioned, with the images specifically, it's not so much the image that we share, but then we code what that person's doing. Are they in a social setting? Are they being active, sedentary? Um, And so that's the information that's actually shared, and that's much more manageable than sending 
20,000 images uh, for a week of wear. And there is this movement called the quantified self. Has anybody heard of that movement? A couple of people here. So that is basically people measuring everything about themselves um, because they think that that information is going to help them change their behavior. And um, certainly my perspective on this, because I'm a behaviorist and, and the computer scientist sort of came to me eventually and said, all this data, it's not helping me get healthier. And I'm like, no, it can tell you how you're doing. It can help you set goals. But you have to understand what setting a goal is about. You have to understand what skills you need to change your behavior, to be aware of how much you're eating, to pause before you finish your meal, to plan physical activity into your day. So all these things in terms of helping the the public, that's why I say the the Fitbit's not going to change our health. It it, it tells us something about our, our data and knowing where we're at and what we're trying to get to is important. But we find you need a lot more than that. I mean, we have um, interventions where we have behavioral counselors. And that was certainly on our feedback from our technology um, focus groups was, um, I want to know that there's a person on the end of this data holding me accountable for what I'm doing. If I think a computer is sending me these messages, they're not going to work. So that's really important for for sure. And then um, the work we do is um, with older adults. And the, the biggest thing for them when we organize a physical activity program is the socialization it's getting out and and socializing and and that that makes you forget that you're even doing physical activity because you're having a walk and having a great conversation so to me the the technologies are not um the the be all and and end all but for me they really help me evaluate things precisely oh this is interesting Could this data be used to address health insurance costs, i.e. couch potatoes pay more? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then the volunteers. (laughs) Yeah, right, (laughs) exactly. I think that you might have a a problem when you uh, say that that's what it's being used for, (laughs) recruiting people, but... Yeah, and, and again, I think it's partly my, my research perspective. Um, should we be punished for living in an environment where the healthy choice is not the easiest choice? That's where we want to get to. We want to build environments where the healthy choice is the easiest of all choices, where you can get out your door and walk down the street to get healthy food, and it's easy for you to do. If you're not living in that environment, to punish people for um, making individual choices that are maybe not so healthy, I think is definitely a, a big political issue. And, and that's been interesting because Fitbit is doing employee wellness now, and there's been a lot of concern about that being conducted through the employee assistance programs and having access to identifiable data. Fortunately, you're not in that space. I think it goes back to, too, being transparent with how the data is going to be used, which right. is, you know, that's our main responsibility that we tell people exactly how we're going to use the data and, and what analyses we're doing. So in that case, if you were to make it clear to someone that that's what the purpose of the data collection is, then, yeah, you probably have some problems recruiting people, but, it would, you know, as long as you were 
revealing that. Yeah. So what do you do if you detect a crime? I mean, this, this, we've talked about this before. You know, you're wearing the camera. You can take an image of somebody, like say it's me, and you saw the plate of food. It could be me at a bar drinking a beer, then getting in my car and texting and hitting something. What do you do? So far, we haven't come across one. So um, we looked to some uh, guidelines on this. And basically, uh, one of the things that um, we... Because, again, you know, you could see... um, Those are all good examples. Um, What we agreed to um, uh, report was abuse. If we saw abuse, that was something that as so like as a as a um, physician, you would have to report that. So we held ourselves to the the medical reporting standards, Um, but um, not to every infraction of the law that that can occur. But I mean, it is amazing how much people do when they're driving. So the other part of that is, though, that we aren't. We aren't looking at the data in real time, as Jacqueline mentioned, so oftentimes we are, we're analyzing something years after the fact, so it wouldn't necessarily be uh, relevant in that moment. And in your informed consent, it's real clear what is, what is reportable, and so you do tell people that up front. Um, this is a, a question we've been kind of challenged by as well. How do you anticipate people from other cultures will respond to these technologies? And how have you, how you've included diverse communities? So what, what is there, have there been differences in receptivity or different concerns? So um, we did do work um, with, Latino communities and and um, then followed up with some interviews because on one of the studies um, it was clear that participants weren't willing to do it so they were volunteers and they just said I'm not going to wear the GPS device and it seemed like that rate was higher than in our other studies so again um, it wasn't entirely clear to me um, whether some of that was because of the process of of handing out the devices and that there wasn't sort of clarity and confirmation in in what was happening. Um, But definitely there was concerns, particularly about if if people were um, crossing the border or or, um, if they were undocumented then um, they might not want to wear these devices. Or if they were in a household where there were other people um, with different status. So um, certainly there there are concerns um, from from some groups. So if GPS trackers are Wi-Fi enabled and they get hacked or monitored by a bad guy, does the researcher and research university have responsibility for how to address that? And that's, the, that's, that's our concern. We've talked about GPS data in and of itself is not risky. It's just the potential breach of that by this bad guy. So should the university be responsible? So there might be a difference in, you know, when that hack happens, if it's in the transfer 
to the university or once it's housed in the university? Because I, I believe there are laws by law, I think a research study over 500 people, is that right? If there is a breach of confidentiality, it has to be a statewide notice uh, made about that. But it's a great question, and I think these are some of the gray areas that we really aren't sure of yet and, and have to sort of figure out together. And I think that's been the thing that being on the forefront of it, we kind of butt up against these issues with the review board because we're trying to be proactive and, and be ahead of this type of situation. And I think that that really is a, an ideal closing point because this is an incredibly new frontier. All of these new tools, we have new methods, um, and we have very old dated regulations to, to guide this practice. And so the rules for human research protections are changing, but they will never be agile enough to keep up with the pace of research using these new technologies. So it's incredibly important that researchers like you, that IRBs, that the public is getting engaged in these conversations so we can actually shape the ethics for the 21st century. So with that, I would like to thank you both so much for participating in this really exciting lecture. I'll turn it back over to Dr. Kellichman. So... First, um, thank you, Camille and Katie and Jacqueline. This was excellent. Um, Camille just preempted my attempt to summarize the program by providing an excellent summary. I just want to add one caveat that seems to be important because at a couple of junctures in the program, we did have a bit of a foray into questions about what are the legal obligations of the university or researchers. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think none of us here this evening are lawyers. So take everything you heard with a grain of salt. And also, that underlines the importance, though, of all of us being involved in the conversations to figure out what we're going to do with the technology, figure out how we're going to handle these things. Because, in fact, not just the IRB regulations, but the laws we have in place may not really fit properly with the things that are being developed. Thank you, everybody, and for your excellent questions as well. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.